Hi everyone, and welcome to 404. In this episode, I'm joined by Emily Larkin, a young advocate for invisible disability awareness, a member of Young Vinegale National Executive, and most importantly, a good friend. It was great to chat to Emily in this episode, in which we discussed what initially got her involved in politics and what led her to run for the YFG National Executive, while also discussing what it was like growing up in Ireland with an invisible disability and how she hopes to raise awareness on the subject in the future. If you're watching this episode on YouTube and there's anything you found particularly interesting, please leave a comment below. And if you're listening on Spotify, you can reach out to the podcast by emailing johnson.business.yt at gmail.com. So, with the housekeeping out of the way, please sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. I don't know how to open this because um, we decided to do this kind of a while ago because you originally meant to do the yeah the YFG one yeah <clears throat> the Young People in Politics series and it's funny enough because I had always wanted to do an interview with you more full out or like a longer series style interview because I know there's a lot of things that I'd like to talk to you about because mm. for someone who's only 20 there's quite a few things that you're doing at the moment which is really interesting so like for example obviously we talked about YFG you're now a member of the Young Finnegale National Executive, you're the Diversity, Inclusion and Engagement Officer. Yeah. Um, but then you also founded Invisibility, Invisibil- Invisible, Invisible Disability, Disability Ireland. Ireland. Yeah. Um, that was part of your gold <coughs> gospel, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So do you maybe just want to walk me through a bit of where that idea came about and why you wanted to start up Invisible Disability? Um, yeah. So I suppose I have an invisible disability. I know what it's like for people to maybe not understand what it means to have an invisible disability because it's internal, people can't see it. Um, And so I was getting quite frustrated about things, particularly as I was kind of starting up college. I noticed kind of a lot of the inequalities that I faced um, in secondary school, then college, and then just in general. Um, And I remember looking up, you know, invisible disability charities in Ireland, and there wasn't any, and I couldn't believe it, that there was no charity dedicated to invisible disabilities in Ireland because there's one in the UK and the US and I said well if if there's not one there then maybe this is something I should take on um, and so I did um, and then I said I would commit to my gold goshka and do 52 weeks of a community involvement and then it just really tied in nicely with my gold goshka and then setting up something that I'm passionate about. Mm-hmm. Because the page at the moment is very much an awareness page isn't it around invisible disabilities? Yeah so it's about all types of disabilities um, it's about raising awareness campaigns just anything about about invisible disabilities mm-hmm. so you you were diagnosed with rheumatoid I tra- I, the words always escape me when it comes to this stuff because I'm just so not in depth mm. with that I was terrible at science and I was terrible at everything to do with anything <laughs> with health so you had rheumatoid arthritis at the age of 13 was it yes yeah, so my type is juvenile idiopathic polyarticular rheumatoid positive arthritis right. so it's a very long name <laughs> But um, yeah, I was diagnosed, I reacted abnormally to a virus and then it triggered an abnormal response to my immune system. And then I relapsed permanently when I was 14. And then I was put on a low dosage of chemotherapy and then I was moved on to immunotherapy and a low dosage of chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I've been on that now for five or six years now. So I'm immunocompromised during COVID, which has been tough, but you know, it's been okay. Yeah. But even at the age of 13, like that couldn't have been easy. Um, like how, just from my own perspective and like, feel free to stop me at mm. whatever point, but 
you know, most people at the age of 13 are just going into school. They're starting mm-hmm. to, you know, make friends in secondary school. Like, this is something that really puts a spanner in the works. Like, what was it like? How how well did you react to it in that time? Because obviously most people wouldn't react well to it. But you're always, yeah. whenever I see you, you're always a very positive person. You're always outgoing. Um, um, yeah, yeah, it was a bit of a shock. Um, I woke up. It happened on a Friday and it, I just like deteriorated. I missed like almost a month of school. Mm. And then when I came back, I had lost half my hair. I had lost like a stone and weight. I was very, very sick. I couldn't walk for a, for a long time. So it was very challenging, but I hid it from my friends, obviously, because I didn't want people to judge me. Um, and maybe that's one of the beauties of an invisible disability is sometimes you can hide it. But mm. Yeah, like it took a long time to come to terms with it, particularly arthritis as a stigma around it being an old person's disease. So I was worried people were going to see me differently and see kind of my illness rather than me. But I had fantastic friends who were like super supportive, always there for me. You know, if I wanted to talk, if I didn't, that was okay. And then, you know, my meds worked out really well. I kind of, I went into partial remission at that stage and my hair had started to grow back and stuff. So I'd kind of, you know, gotten over the worst of it at that stage. And, you know, having the friends and the family and I had the fantastic medical team in Crumlin Hospital just kind of helped the entire thing. So it was very tough, but I think when you live with it for so long, it just becomes part of the normal. I always say... Like when I go to hospital, it's just like going to the bank. It's just something mm. you have to do. It's just embedded in my life. And I, I, I honestly forget when I say I have to go to the hospital, people are like, oh, and I'm like, no, no, no. Like, it's just a regular checkup because people don't experience that. But that, I always say that's that's my normal. So I think I've adapted quite well to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, one thing I always, I, I always find um, fascinating with people who uh, especially are diagnosed with uh, such difficult conditions at young ages, because one of my best friends had a, um, it's not similar to yours in any case, mm. but it was very bad. He, he couldn't actually eat it. I think it was something to do with his bladder or his bowel or something in which it meant that he wasn't able to eat physical food. He had to be fed through mm. a peg tube. Um, but one of the things I always notice is that like, when you run into these sort of people, they almost have a more upbeat attitude about life because they have that perspective. And I, I definitely noticed that with you as well, because I always find that, you know, as bad as things can be, there's always maybe a yeah. smile or a joke at the end of whatever, th- whatever happens. Uh, has that... Has that always been the case or obviously I'd say there's times where you're very affected by it and it wouldn't be like some days you might want to get out of bed or you wouldn't want to do this that and the other is like how do you at least if you were trying to talk to someone in a similar position about mm-hmm. how you get out of that lump at the time yeah I think perspective is everything when you can't walk and there's days when you're ill and you're in hospital you really appreciate the positive things in life and you appreciate the small things like just getting here on the bus today and being able just to come here is is just like such a blessing in itself because I know what it's like to not be able to do that so and then I suppose like my time in Barrettstown really put a lot of things into perspective as well being with children and doing therapeutic recreation program really helped but yeah I think when you have a different experience in life that always kind of influences how you go about your life and I feel yeah like I am a positive person majority of the time (laughs) but like I do have my moans my complaints there are days when I do get upset about it but like life is so short you can't you can't narrow and focus in on that you have to just go with it and I think you just make the best out of a bad situation 100% um bringing about it back a bit then to Invisible Disability Mm. Ireland is there sort of an end goal in sight for the actual charity itself or how are you hoping to progress with it in the future? So Invisible Disability Week is in November so I suppose that's kind of a big goal in just getting awareness and um, campaigns and stuff but 
yeah I mean we'll see where it takes I finish in about November time so mm-hmm. um I'm hoping I'll like keep going with it because I just get back so many positive messages from people saying wow like it's so needed in Ireland you know you're really doing fantastic work so I suppose it's just to grow it and to get as many followers as possible and you know just to get the message out there that not all disabilities are visible because mm-hmm. I was noticing it because I looked through uh, the page again just before mm. doing the interview and there's a load of personal stories from people yeah. on that page are they all people you would have known directly or are they people who reached out to you as well yeah so we did a, a campaign called share your story mm. so it was kind of just to personalize it and make it more what actually is you know an invisible disability to a person so yeah these were all people who just reached out and said i'm interested in sharing my story and they did and it was fantastic just to you know personalize what it means to have an invisible disability Mm-hmm. For different people um so let's move on a little bit then to politics more so and this is probably where mm. we we first met each other was through yeah. young Fine Gael, um to which i'm no longer a member of but you're still obviously very active <laughs> in but you were it's, it's sort of a strange story in a way because not too many people in young Fine Gael would first of all come onto a committee in one year and then also be on the national executive <laughs> at the end of that year um what initially like how did you get into politics initially was it through health as well or was it through something completely different yeah it was through health i remember just talking about the health service and saying like oh my god how awful it was and my experiences and my friend dara said well you know why don't you join young finnegale and actually make a difference to the health service because they're the people you can change because i knew i didn't want to work in the health service because Mm -hmm. i'm in and out of hospital a lot um and that's when I kind of said yeah he kind of planted the idea in my head like wow like that's such a good point that everyone lobbies a politician so you know it's so important that you get a politician and that you lobby them and so they're the real change makers Mm -hmm. so I kind of waited a year or two wasn't really sure I wanted to do my leaving cert first and then I joined in college in first year um Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where it began. Um, I knew I wanted to join Fine Gael just because I think it aligned best with my views. Um, and I signed up. Um, as you know, I went to the AGM. I didn't speak a word. I was terrified. <laughs> um, everyone was so politically experienced and I had never done anything like that before. So I was a little put off. But then I went back in April. Um, and as you know, I became treasurer, God help us all. <laughs> and <laughs> that's kind of where the journey began. If it wasn't for the five friends that I initially met, I wouldn't have gotten involved because I think even youth politics can be quite intimidating if you mm-hmm. if you don't know the lay of the land or if you're not politically experienced. But yeah, no, that's how I kind of took the plunge then. Um, and as you know, we went to summer school, we did lots of bits and bobs. And then the elections came around the corner for national executive. Mm. Um, I didn't have any idea what it was. Um, But then people were kind of lobbying me, I suppose, saying, would you run, would you run? And I was oh God, no, like I'm not even in the place a year. Like um, most people wait, I think it's like at least two or three years before they run. Um, But then I noticed there was no women for four, for four positions on panel. So there was six candidates and they were all guys. And I was like, this isn't right. So I was texting loads of people being like, you should, you know, you should go for it. You should go for it. And everyone's like, no, no, I'm not going to go for it. Like I texted a ton of women and none of them were interested. And I kind of said, well, right, there has to be a woman, um, you know, at the top table of exec. So I just said, right, let's go. And it was mad because I had no idea what to expect. I had never been to national conference before, but like, I think I learned some of the most important lessons in politics and life when you just 
take the plunge and get involved. You learn so much about yourself, about politics, just about everything. So I'm really glad I did it, like looking back. Um, and yeah, like it's been fantastic. Um, obviously sitting at the top table, um, you know, getting to make a difference, getting to help and do things in YFG that I'm passionate about. Um, I have the best portfolio personally, mm-hmm. I think, on exec. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, it's been fantastic. Um, I've, I've loved it so far. Yeah. No, you spoke briefly on the fact that there were no women running for yeah. panel at the time. And since then, um, there's now three women, I think, on national executive, including a new co-option. Um, but you also were involved in setting up the Young Fine Gael's Women's Network. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to walk me through a little bit about that? Because I'm not 100% clued yeah. in on it all. So the last national executive had a women's network, but it was it was very tough work because there was only two people trying to coordinate and run it. So the advice I was given from my predecessor was to set up a committee and then do the women's network. So that's what I did. Um, I went about it with me, myself and Susan, the other woman mm-hmm. on exec, and we set up a committee and it kind of went from there. We've had two events, it's been fantastic. And I hope it just kind of goes from strength to strength because we need more women in politics. Um, and hopefully this will be a good kind of vessel to do that. Yeah, and from your experience as well, at least from a YFG perspective, and mm. I know the main parties always get a lot of flack for not running enough female candidates. Do you feel that that is something that is being addressed now at a youth level? I mean, yeah, I mean, it's difficult because if you can't see, you can't be. So I suppose Frances Fitzgerald was a trailblazer being, you know, the woman to Anishta. Um, But if women, young girls can't see what they could achieve, then they won't join. So it's letting them know that there is a career path for women that we, you know, we'd love to see more women and it's getting them involved. Um, I think it's changing people's attitude in the organization as well, because I remember when I was approached to run, I was like, I had 1001 reasons not to run. But if you asked a man, they would, you know, they would just say, yeah, absolutely. And they just go for it, (laughs) you know. So I think we need to change our culture, our approach, just how we go about it and realizing that we we do need to step up to the plate and take lead on leadership roles, you know, Mm -hmm. for other women as well as yourself. So. Yeah, I think it's important that it starts at a youth level. Um, but obviously, you know, it starts with quotas, I suppose. They have been successful. It's not the best approach. You would like just women just to run on their own bat. But hopefully when we achieve equal representation, when we reach the 50%, we, we won't need quotas anymore. It'll just be kind of embedded in society. Mm-hmm. You talked a bit about Frances Fitzgerald, and it is always really interesting because I remember you set up an event in Leinster House for women in politics. Mm. And it was so surprising just to hear that, like, I think it was three out of four of the people on that panel had all worked for Frances Fitzgerald. Um, now, that probably says loads about Frances Fitzgerald having loads of people working for her all the time. <laughs> but like, it, it is it is very much something that, from my perspective as a guy, you don't really think about that much. Uh, but it was enlightening to see the impacts that one person can have on so many people, specifically a woman. Mm. Um, do you think there's anyone now that is kind of living up to the same legacy, inspiring not only yourself, but other people in Fine Gael and young Fine Gael as women to get involved in politics? Yeah, I mean, all you need is that one role model, that one person. And, you know, Frances was in my constituency in Dublin Midwest and she's such a trailblazer. Like we had two women in Fine Gael running in the general um, and we've, we're doing so well with gender balance. We have a woman chair. So like you can really see the effect of having Francis in the constituency and what, that's, what, what that has done for women. Um, I think there's many people you can look up to, you know, to see from Madigan being a minister, Regina Doherty, 
there's just so many women in Fine Gael you can look towards for inspiration. Um, so yeah, it's it's very exciting to see what kind of the next generation of women will bring to Fine Gael for sure. Mm-hmm. And I suppose questions only kind of coming to me now, and it's quite apt as well that we're sitting in front of yeah. all the former Taoiseachs, our Taoiseach, who are all <laughs> men. Is there anyone in particular that you think coming forward would be possibly the first female leader of Fine Gael and the first female Taoiseach maybe? I have to be politically neutral but um, no I think it'd be fantastic to see any woman of Fine Gael, you know become leader and hopefully become Taoiseach someday mm-hmm. so I think that's something that is very reasonable to aspire to given the talent in cabinet and in the parliamentary party at the moment of course yeah um, I suppose I'll, usually in the interviews I always ask when we're all gone and oh, how would you like people to remember but you're only 20 so I'm not going to ask that question Um <laughs> Instead, I'll ask a similar question to the one I did in the uh, Young People in Politics series. Is there, where do you see your future going, not only in the realm of politics, but obviously outside that as well, because you do stuff outside that as well? Yeah, um, well, I'm two years into my degree, um, so hopefully I'll be a qualified primary school teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of politics, um, yeah, hopefully um, I'll be given the opportunity to run and to maybe be on the ballot paper. Um, but in terms of health, um, yeah, I could I could transfer over, become a civil servant, have to relinquish my my party politics um, and work in the civil service. But yeah, it's all kind of open in the air. I'm kind of open to to see what happens. Um, I think that's the great thing about my career is you can work in so many different areas. So mm-hmm. yeah, I'm looking forward to see what the future holds. Hopefully, it's in politics or health. Perfect, Emily Larkin. Thanks, a million. Thank you.